Let me try that again. Good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me okay? Okay. Really just, my heart is full with so much appreciation for each of you and your practice. It's really deep bows to what we're doing here. So this afternoon, as you are well aware, is well into the second full day of our retreat. If you haven't noticed. And if you're doing great, wonderful. I'm delighted for you. And for many people, the first full day or two of a meditation retreat can be pretty challenging, right? <laughs> Physical stuff, emotional stuff, maybe your top five or top 20 thoughts that just keep going. There's a lot going on in there, right? Needing the effect, as Bob was talking about, of the momentum of our lives on this body, heart, mind. It can be challenging, right? Meditation can feel like manual labor or a slog sometimes. And... um, In fact, one of my friends calls this day of the retreat the swamp. It's the swamp. It's like we're exploring our inner ecology. And sometimes it's beautiful and there are miraculous views and sunshine and light. Other times it's stormy and rainy in there. And sometimes we're hiking over rocks or through the swamp. So wherever you are, Just know that you're on the path and you're doing okay. This happens so often to enough of us that many times in many meditation retreats, we dedicate one full talk to working with obstacles in the practice. And that's what this talk is about. It's called the five hindrances talk, usually. And that's because the Buddha had a list Not a comprehensive list by any means, but sort of the greatest hits, the most common, that cover a wide range of what can happen. And that is known as the five hindrances in Pali, the five nivarana, or coverings. These coverings cover up our freedom, our awakening, our natural beauty, our potentiality. And the nivarana, the hindrances, are part of a much larger class of thoughts, ideas, views, moods that broadly fit into the third and mostly fourth foundations of mindfulness. Um, And these mental activities in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, dhammas, thoughts, ideas, views, can either keep us knotted up, contracted, and bound, or they can help to set us free. So it's really helpful to be able to discern the difference between thoughts and mental activity that's beneficial towards freeing versus activity that's not so helpful. So the list, the classic list is First, sensual desire, 
or in some in some instances of the Buddha's teaching, sensual desires are placed with covetousness, wanting what we don't have, wanting what someone else has. The second one is ill will. So instead of that impulse towards wanting, grabbing, there's the impulse towards pushing away, wanting it to go away. The third is usually um, restlessness and worry is the most common translation. My favorite translation is worry and flurry. Kind of describes the internal state, right? Anxiety fits into this category too. And then the old English kind of translation of the next one is sloth and torpor. Sloth and torpor. Now, I personally like sloths. I think they're cute. So I prefer a different translation, which is resistance and freeze or rigidity. So pick your word or words. Any of them work. And then the last hindrance is doubt. And that can be skeptical doubt. Oh, this will never work. Or it can be wavering doubt. Oh, I don't know. What am I going to do? What should I sit? Should I walk? Should I do metta? Should I do... What should I do? That's a version of doubt. So it's not all bad news. Just want to start with that. First of all, these are the human condition. They're not a personal failing. They're not unique to you, though the details may be unique to each of us. But as a broad class of experiences, they all kind of came installed with us as humans. So you're not alone. Whatever version might occasionally visit in your meditation, you're in good company. The second way this is not all bad news is that these hindrances, when they transform from being filters over our eyes that kind of influence the way we see the world and become objects of our meditation, something that we look at clearly, they actually become information towards awakening, food for awakening. It all hinges It all hinges on how we relate to them. So listen up, okay? How we relate. If it becomes about me, about my failing, about me being a bad meditator, bad yogi, bad human, not so helpful. An alternative is to keep recollecting, all of us have this. This is human condition in action. No more personal than the weather in its underlying dynamics, though very personal with the stories, of course, right? Each of us have our own histories, our own pain. I don't want to make light of that. There's a lot of suffering in this world. And there's a way of seeing it that includes all of us. We're not alone, right? So, at different points, different hindrances will visit each of us more or less often. If you take them personally, 
as I'm saying, they can be real impediments. They can provoke reactions, judgments, even giving up. They'll roll up the mat stage, they call that in Burma. So please, please try not to take them personally. It can be hard. But starting to see a core part of the mastery of mindfulness, of awareness practice, is to begin to study the hindrances, become fluent in the hindrances, be naturalists in our own ecology, whether it's swamp and poison oak or beautiful fields and mountain ranges and oceans. Right? Once there's more of a sort of a naturalist's view, a scientist's view, then they start to become wisdom. We start to see how they arise, what their wily little tricks are, these hindrances. And they can start to reveal more basic impulses underneath. So you might have noticed, at least for me, maybe for you, most of my hindrances take the form of thoughts. Is that true for anyone else? Maybe one or two of you? I see a few nods. Okay. So with that in mind, I'd like to offer some meditation hints. These were adapted by author Kim Boykin from the Colorado Division of Wildlife's Hints on Bears. You may not know this, but bears and thoughts have a lot in common. (laughs) Just listen. She says, I picked up a pamphlet on living in bear country, and the suggestions for what to do if you meet a bear sounded a lot like meditation instructions. So here are some helpful hints from the Colorado Division of Wildlife. Colorado has been home to thoughts since their earliest ancestors evolved in North America. Today, increasing numbers of people routinely live and play with thoughts. In thought country, that is. Learning about thoughts and becoming aware of their habits will help you fully appreciate these unique animals and the habitat in which they live. That's us, right? What to do if you meet a thought. There are no definite rules about what to do if you meet a thought. Thought attacks are rare compared to the number of close encounters. (laughs) However, if you do meet a thought before it has time to leave your area, Here are some suggestions. Remember, each situation is different with respect to a thought, its activity, the terrain, and the person involved. Tip number one, stay calm. If you see a thought and it hasn't seen you, calmly leave the area. (laughs) Tip number two, stop. Back away slowly while facing the thought. (laughs) Give the thought plenty of room to escape. Wild thoughts rarely attack people unless they feel threatened or provoked. Third tip, speak softly. This may reassure the thought that no harm is meant to it. Fourth is relax. 
If a thought stands upright or moves closer, it may be trying to detect your scent. This is not a sign of aggression. Once a thought identifies you, it may leave the area or try to intimidate you by charging within a few feet before it withdraws. And finally, don't run or make any sudden movements. Running is likely to provoke the thought to give chase. And you can't outrun a thought. (laughs) The last little note here is if you have a potentially life-threatening situation with a thought or injury does occur, please contact the Division of Wildlife. (laughs) So this kind of gets at one of the keys of working with the hindrances, which is it's okay to take it lightly. It's okay to be humorous. We all have these wild thoughts, unruly thoughts that come through sometimes. They can be aggressive, they can be mean, they can be scary, and rarely do they actually cause an injury. Right? So, you can't outrun a thought, you can't outrun a hindrance, but... You can become attuned to their arising and wise in the ways of working with them. This means learning them inside out. So as I speak, the invitation here is to feel into your body, feel into your heart, feel into your mind for what resonates and feels true in your own experience. And then... Notice, just notice. I'm going to run through them in a little bit more detail now. Sensual desire. That's that leaning towards, we all know it. The craving for comfort, satisfaction, pleasure. It's no crime. I remember this was some years ago. I had recently gotten off retreat. There's no food in the house, so I was eating at a diner. And it was empty, mostly. This father and little four-year-old kid were about to leave. And um, on the counter by the cash register was this giant bowl of gummy worms. And I don't know, it's 10 o'clock in the morning, 9 o'clock in the morning. That kid wanted those gummy worms. Oh, my goodness. There was, like, magnetic attraction, right? And dad's paying up, and kid is plucking dad's sleeve, like, can I have a gummy worm? You know, being really, really insistent. And what impressed me so much is the dad turned to his son and just looked at him full of love and empathy and goes, wow, you really want those, don't you? And the kid's like, yeah, yeah, I do. And then it dissolved. They walked out. The kid needed the acknowledgement. It was a remarkable moment of parental jujitsu, right? So, that same kind of turning towards with loving empathy works really well with all the hindrances, including sensual desire, whether it's for gummy worms or peanut butter or whatever it is. The Buddha talks about this impulse of leaning towards wanting something with a simile. There's a set of these similes. And this is, each of it's a bowl of water. 
And in this simile, the water has red dye in it, or it's pink. And everything that reflects it is kind of, it's like rose-colored glasses, right? It looks more attractive. That's the distortion. But if it's turned towards instead, it just becomes a passing impulse, right? We ground in the body. There's also a, Gilfran still calls these near friends of the hindrances. The near friend of sensual desire is a healthy aspiration. Maybe an aspiration for awakening or for healing, for love, for metta. So to tune into the difference. Sometimes a sensual desire is moving us away from something much deeper. And sometimes it's adjacent to something very beautiful. So just notice. Notice the difference and see if you can tune in to the healthy version. There's ill will. Next one on the list. This is everything from mild dislike or aversion to hostility and just hatred, full-on hatred. It's the whole range, right? The anecdote could be like, I can't believe my high school friend did that to me. All these years later, she betrayed me. Can you believe it? We get hooked, right, into some historical story. Wow, she did that to me. And before I know it, heat's built up, meditation's long gone. And there's some kind of grousey thing happening that then might get projected onto anything and everything in my path. Right? This simile is a bowl of boiling water bowl of boiling water. It influences everything. It makes it very hard to see anything. And it's that feeling of seething, right? It's very uncomfortable. Everything is seen through heat. And there's also this, the Buddha at one point in the suttas calls it the honey-tipped arrow, it will injure, but it like it's there's almost a sometimes like a sweet feeling of righteousness in it that can be the hook for some of us, that energy. It's helpful to notice the discomfort, right? Anger, ill will, hostility come with tension. They come with tension. And then the healthy counterpart to that, we often in the West, we call, we we kind of sugarcoat ill will a little bit. We like to call it aversion. There's also averting. And averting means something different. It means simply turning away. A healthy turning away or a healthy no. So aversion in common parlance, just like ill will, frustration, blah, blah. We can just avert the gaze from what's churning up the anger and it can settle. It can settle. Okay, the next one, the restlessness and worry, the worry and flurry. This includes regrets. Regrets and worry are kind of a pair in a way. Worry is the future tense, if you will, worrying about the future and regrets 
are from the past. Now, often our worries are based on regrets, right? And there's this cycle, this feedback loop that can build up. And all of that is one cause, not the only cause of restlessness. Another cause can be, like, I'm extremely physically active. Sitting all day, my body will get restless after a couple of days. Just like, why aren't you moving me? (laughs) You know? So to notice, notice that. For me, it feels like popcorn going off in the body. Like all this energy moving. The simile there is a windswept pond, confused water rippling, you know, kind of almost before a storm, right? And if you're lucky enough that it's simply a physical restlessness, taking a brisk walk will often work it off. That can even help with the other kinds of restlessness. Sometimes emotion needs to move, right? Needs to move through. The healthy, these are mine, the healthy counterparts for restlessness and worry are a healthy regard for consequences in the future and a healthy remorse. So instead of a toxic guilt or regret, it's more of a, oh, that could have been done better. How can I learn from that? How can I learn from that? How can I become at peace? Is there a repair with myself or another? It becomes food for wisdom then, right? And to cut ourselves some slack. Every human being alive has made mistakes. Everyone. That's how we learn. The fourth of the Buddha's hindrances that he taught about, the sloth and torpor, or as I prefer, resistance and rigidity. Resistance and freeze state is another way to think of this. A dissociation. This is different than normal sleepiness or tiredness. So I just wanted to say that up front, that a lot of us come into retreat underslept, underrested, overworked, or overactivityed. And it is completely natural to feel sleepiness coming up. A few people have now talked about the head nod, right? Or in some cases, it's the full body nod. So to acknowledge and allow the sleepiness without recrimination, without feeling bad about it. It's natural, it's human. And there's tips and tricks. But what I'm talking about in this case, I'll talk about sleepiness for just a moment, and then I'll go into the resistance and rigidity, the sloth and torpor. With sleepiness, if you're really underslept, please sleep more while you're here. Really? Right? Not an invitation to indulgence, but to self-care, to kindness. Give yourself some deeply needed rest if that's what's needed right now. My favorite is to enjoy the sleepiness. It's actually a really pleasant state if you're not trying to resist it. And the best time to experiment with this is right when you're about to go to sleep anyway. You can just hang out and feel the pleasurableness of sleepiness. 
lying in bed, and notice where the awareness drops away. Sometimes it doesn't. It's possible to be mindful while dreaming. And just don't make a project out of it, but just notice, because that's some seriously pleasant Vedana right there, right? Even in the hall, it can be pleasant if we're not trying to fight it. Non-contention is key. Non-contention is key. Other practical tips, if it's, um, if you're in the hall and you're trying to meditate, momentarily tightening the thigh muscles and sometimes the back can send a message to the whole nervous system. Hey, wake up. So can letting in a little more light into your eyes. And then, um, say the last one, which is the most subtle, is to emphasize the in-breath just a little bit. Hold it for a microsecond at the top of the in-breath and then release out. And just do that two or three breaths. And it, start, it just adds a little energy to the system. Just a little. Conversely, for rest- restlessness and worry, if a brisk walk is not practical or advisable in the moment, riding out the out-breath oh, to the very end and resting at the end of it a few times sends a message to relax. And these are things that can be done. Nobody needs to know. It can happen on the cushion, in the food line, wherever. Okay, so sleepiness, which is not a hindrance. Well, it can be a hindrance to meditation, but it's not a hindrance to spiritual progress in general. Sloth and torpor, rigidity and resistance are a classic hindrance. And those, it's really helpful to become a student of the resistance. That sounded kind of radical. Actually, what I meant was (laughs) to really get to know the resistance. It's there for a reason. Appreciate the fact that it may be trying to protect something worth protecting, Maybe not in the most helpful way, but to just notice it. Our job isn't to go digging, right? This is not an archaeological dig where you use a pickaxe. It's more like an archaeological dig where you use a little duster and dust layer by layer. The beauty will reveal itself within you if you don't push too hard, right? A healthy counterpoint, too, to this kind of rigidity or resistance is noticing a healthy fluidity or a really natural, beautiful stillness. They feel quite different. This this stillness, when it's dropped into, is very peaceful, right? There's no conflict there. There's no holding there unless we start grasping at it, and then it'll go away anyway. Feeling that stillness within, whatever that feels like. The simile the Buddha uses for this resistance and rigidity, sloth and torpor, is a bowl of water with algae covering it. 
can't see through it. But it's possible to part the algae gently and to get to clear water, right? Then the last of these hindrances is doubt. And as I mentioned before, it can take two forms. Skeptical doubt, which it's really good sometimes at masquerading as wisdom. Oh, this will never work. This will never work because like your inner attorney just has it nailed, right? All the reasons. That's skeptical doubt. And the most helpful thing I've ever found for working with it is to turn around and look it in the eye and name that it's doubt. Because otherwise it has so much authority, right? People have left retreats because of skeptical doubt and then been like, a few days later. So, consider. Check out the internal tone of voice. Sometimes there's kind of a certain tone to skeptical doubt that's different than real wisdom. Real wisdom is more settled back, more open. And it probably isn't going to try to make you do something like get up and bolt, right? The thing about doubt is it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So again, noticing it as an object of meditation rather than the filter I'm seeing the world through is really helpful. And perhaps it's no coincidence, but many people who experience a lot of skeptical doubt often experience the other kind as well, which is this kind of a wavery doubt. Am I, should I do this or should I not do that? Should I go here or should I go there? Should I do metta or should I um, do breath meditation? Or gosh, maybe I should do walking meditation right now. Um, oh, maybe I should be outside instead of inside for this sit. Like not in any one of those decisions is fine. But when the wavering keeps going and going and going, it can be helpful again to turn to it, look it in the eye. Say, oh, confusion. Doubt. That's okay. Usually you can just pick one of those activities. Experiment. If it doesn't work, you pick another one. Right? And again, these are human. We all have these arise at one point or another until fully awakened. The simile is muddy, turbid water. Muddy, turbid water. And you think of it, maybe there's a glass bowl of muddy water. What clears that? Just letting it sit and settle for a while. Being with, viscerally, simply in the moment. Oh, can settle. So noticing it as a mental event, this works with any of the hindrances, noticing them as events in the moment, blips, impulses, passing through. And with a lot of these as well, if there are thought trains associated with them, assigning it of a believability index, one to 100, or if you don't like big numbers, one to 10, zero or one being don't believe this, 10 being thoroughly convinced. Even that act of discernment can help create a little separation 
a little separation from it. And it's a little bit playful, or it can be. So these hindrances, they tend to be sticky. They have magnetic pull, right? Really strong, sometimes gravitational pull. They can pull us into these trains of thought that take us far, far away. And I'll talk a little bit more generally now about how to work with any of them. First, like that father with his son, turning towards and acknowledging with kindness. You don't have to give in to the impulse. You don't have to believe the story. But kindness to what's generating it. If there's a hindrance, there's suffering there somewhere. Often hindrances are not so helpful strategies for protecting us, shielding us from a simpler suffering. Anger pasting over grief, for example. Or my favorite, my favorite, I mean my most frequent, anxiety covering over grief or sadness. I'd been conditioned in my family. No one was ever allowed to be sad. So I was well into adulthood before it was okay to drop down. And it's more primal and it can feel scary. And sometimes, once the resistance has been fully seen, fully felt, fully loved, it'll naturally open up and your channels will be big enough to be with. And if it feels too much, you can always just back away a little bit, like you could do from a bear, right? Give it some space. And it'll, it'll resolve. It'll clear. The beauty with that is that learning to contact our own difficult emotions not only helps the peace of our own inner lives, we become so much wiser about ourselves and others, and there's so much more capacity to meet the fullness of our hearts, our lives, our humanity. So the basics, as Bob was talking about attitude some this morning, a kind, compassionate attitude towards the hindrances is transformational. It transforms them from roadblocks to stepping stones, right? It's all in how we relate. It's all in how we relate. Kindness, compassion, If that's not available, patience. Willingness to show up is a form of kindness. Willingness to pay attention, to be with this. There was one time I actually was here for a retreat. I'd had an emergency appendectomy, maybe 24 hours before. The hospital discharged me and... um, I got here the night before because I was coming from a distance. At that time, I did not live locally. And um, I don't know, most of you have probably had some kind of procedure in your lives. I wasn't good for very much, right? I mean, I've been meditating a long time by then. I had a bunch of tools in my toolkit, and none of them were available to me, not one. And I sat like right here in the first row somewhere. 
And all that was available was sitting with the pain and sitting with the tiredness and the grogginess with compassion. That was it. That was it. And friends, that was the most powerful retreat I sat that year. It was transformative to learn that we don't need fancy tricks, concentration states or refined mindfulness or any of it, just sitting with it with love opened things up so beautifully. And in this really simple, ordinary way, you know, no fireworks, no special states, just care. When the wish for well-being meets the reality of suffering, of mortality, compassion can arise if we see the big picture or if we're just willing to be with it. Be with it. If we instead react to hindrances with hindrances. Well, each of you may have experienced this once or heard about it. You know, meeting my desire with aversion. My doubt with self-recrimination. Anger with anger. What does that do? It spins things out. It makes it much worse. So to notice, if you're caught, um, I believe Sylvia Borstein is the first person I've ever heard or heard of saying this term. If you find yourself in the midst of a multiple hindrance attack, you've got two, three, four, all five coming at once, to just start to notice them. Notice them. And work your way in, right? Or you can just step back and be like, Multiple hindrance attack. The bears have come. (laughs) Here they are. It can be that simple, right? The point is not to have contention. Not to have contention with our experience. When we respond to hindrances with hindrances, we amplify them. Confused, spun out, stuck. In contrast, we transform hindrances by responding to them with care. Understanding these are just human responses. They're as impersonal as the weather. They just come, and they do go, eventually. Sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. The poem. You'll find the poem in a moment. This is called Turning to Physics by Rosemary Watola Traumer, Native American poet. An electrical current knows nothing of the path it will take. It follows all paths, but it flows best towards where it flows best. It sounds so simple, and yet the electrons of this body, charged with my beliefs, defy nature and rush to resistance. How often I try to fight myself. 
how often I battle my own current, the current of the world. It's like wading through honey instead of water. It's thinking I know best. Sometimes I see how my own resistance is nothing but part of the path. In that moment, I flow toward where I flow best. In that moment, I'm copper, ductile, tough, resilient. In that moment, I am so alive with it. The buzz, the hum. Sometimes I see how my own resistance is nothing more than part of the path. So that flow, seeing hindrances and other obstacles as part of the process, that comes with mindfulness, which is one of the awakening factors. And seeing the hindrances through the kindness lens and through the awakening factors, both of those are transformative. So there's mindfulness, sati in Pali, Investigation of mind states, Dhamma Vichaya and Pali. And I'm using the full term investigation of mind states because it's about investigating the mind and the moment, not about history. Right? And then virya, effort, energy. Those are three of the awakening factors, the three we have some modicum of capacity and control over in normal situations. And they also transform the hindrances. Strong, simple awareness, mindfulness, transforms all on its own. It may take time. It will take time. And the seeing of how the system is working or not working, that resistance, that walking through honey, naturally moves our internal life towards freedom, health. Oh, we see the absences too. There's a lot to say about effort. I'll just say there's heroic effort and it has its place, that strong, healthy, averting away. The note, I'm not going to look at that. Right? And another kind of effort, a relaxed, light persistence, that archaeologist's brush, a butterfly wing against a rose petal, that light, persistent. And then finally, Dhammavichaya, investigation of states. There's a lot to say about this, but maybe right now what I'll stick with is two simple things. First of all, it has been a tremendous boon to my own practice and people very far along the path that I respect to take a learning mindset. Everything happening is an opportunity to learn. It's right on time. Everything. Take the opportunity to learn. And... There's a distinction 
that we can make very roughly between two kinds of thought. This is a teaching the Buddha gave. There are the thoughts that are beneficial, enlivening, freeing, that bring us closer to peace, the present moment, and thoughts that are distracting, harmful, not so helpful. Take us into thought trains or whirls, storms. To recognize is something in my mind bringing more suffering or more freedom? Which is it? And not always, but sometimes we do have the choice to move towards what is, it's also usually, suffering is unpleasant, freedom more pleasant, don't you think? So to notice, notice in your body, in your heart, the moments when these hindrances drop away, when there's absence, and make use of that absence by savoring it, appreciating it, educating your whole system. Oh, that lifting up, that feels good. That absence of anxiety, wow, that feels amazing. Rather than, oh, and if I plan this way, and if I do that, I can make the anxiety not come back. What have you just done? Yeah, so. It takes time to educate our systems, to appreciate the peace, the quiet, the stillness, joy, and to just learn how to savor them when they arise, the moments and absences, to feel in and to trust. As the hindrances settle down, recognizing and appreciating their absence when it's there, and clinging will bring them back. So that's an education too. But recognizing them with an open hand when they're there, that supports the other factors of awakening. We can't make beautiful things happen in meditation, usually. We can begin to make room for them. We can begin to make room for them. And notice, rather than hopping from one version of suffering to the next in the mind, maybe notice that one's gone before hopping to the next. Let that monkey let go of the branches for a few minutes, right? So, nourish yourself by appreciating the absence of the hindrances when it's there, when they're, there, when they're gone, and Letting them be information, fuel, food for your practice when they're there. Learning their wily ways. How to negotiate with them in thought country, right? And trust the process. When good things are happening, or at least hindrances are dropped away, you can recognize, appreciate, feel into, trust those moments. The Buddha has a simile of a hen and eggs. And he says, if the hen attends to the eggs, sits on them, whether she has the intention or not, those eggs will hatch. So sitting with the potentiality, sitting with that, 
that organic process. None of us know how long it's going to take. But to trust that process. Awareness, compassion, wisdom can metabolize, heal, and transform the very hardest experiences, friends. I can tell you that from my own life. Just trust. This is a poem from a Chinese Buddhist nun named Ben Ming. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. She was alive from 1063 to 1135, so well over a millennia ago. She writes, Don't you know that afflictions are nothing more than wisdom? But to cling to your afflictions is nothing more than foolishness. As they arise and melt away again, you must remember this. As they arise and melt away again, you must remember this. Don't you know that afflictions are nothing more than wisdom and that the purest of lotus blossoms emerges from the muck? If someone were to come and ask me what I do, after eating my oatmeal and rice, I wash my bowl. Don't worry about a thing. Don't worry about a thing. Thank you for your kind attention. <laughs>